This January, over 750 OA members gathered in Los Angeles for OA's 50th birthday party. Events included keynote speakers, multiple long-timer panels, workshops, a big book boot camp, and even an appearance by Roseanne S. If you'd like CDs or MP3s of any or all of these sessions, go to oa50th.org and then follow the link to the recordings. That's oa50th, oa50th.org. Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Dee. I'm the uh, compulsive overeater. Wow, it's really an honor and a privilege to be at this meeting. And I've spoken at this meeting, but um, it was so great. I was telling someone before the meeting, I think the last time I spoke here, the tape recorder broke. (laughs) So we did a good broadcast. I'm like, woo! But um, it's so great, you know, whoever started this and keep this going, that speakers are online and... um, I've traveled around the world, and this has been a tool that has saved my life and saved abstinence. So I'm grateful to be of service and do this as well and share what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So I'll keep it really simple. I have been in Overeaters Anonymous for a little over 15 years, and I have a little over 14 years of abstinence. And um, to get the numbers out of the way for those listening who cannot see me, my top weight was well over probably 200, over 230 pounds. Uh, top clothing size was a size 22-24. So I binged my way to a very large clothing size and busting out of that. And I can also qualify as an anorexic. I've been hospitalized for anorexia and I was close probably to 100 pounds and a size 2-4. So those are the numbers. And today, I don't weigh myself, but I go by what my clothing size is, which is anywhere between an 8 and a 10, depending on the store size and what kind of magic they're trying to <laughs> transpire with <laughs> the imaginary sizes out there. <laughs> Sometimes I've been in six, I'm like, this is so not a six. But um, uh, anyway, it's somewhere in there. So like, it's been that within the time that I you know, finally got down to normal body weight after a few years of abstinence. You know, my sponsor reminds me that, you know, our primary purpose is to carry the message, and the goal of this is sane and guilt-free eating for me, and to just have some sanity around food and in normal body weight, and I have that through definitely not my own doing, but by over-anonymous and by higher power, and you guys can't do this alone. So I started, I'll just talk a little bit about what it was like, and Let's see, I um, started compulsive eating when I was about 11. I, I was born in Los Angeles and then moved to a um, small town in Colorado when I was like seven. And um, a lot of life change and things that many of us go through, chaotic families, a lot of alcoholism in my family, a lot of craziness, and just remember feeling really unsafe. That's what I remember. And um, I turned to food, and, like, it was probably always there, and the light switch turned on when I was 11. And I just, you know, I went on a family trip and just was binging the whole time. And I just remember the food giving me a real feeling of safety and 
it just made me feel a little more whole in a family that I just did not feel safe in or complete in or, you know, I just felt like I was dropping parts of myself everywhere and, you know, emotionally. And I just remember the food kind of padded me up emotionally. And, of course, then it started to physically pad me up. So I discovered my first diet at 11. I came back from this trip, and my mom looked at me. She couldn't believe it. I come from a family of normal eaters. They're all, um, you know, my immediate family are all normal body size. So, And I grew up in town where there's a lot of skiing, a lot of hiking, a lot of mountain biking, a lot of people who are very athletic. And, you know, it was like there were not a lot of fat people around there. And so when I started gaining weight, I just felt really like I was living in a foreign country. It was really isolating. So anyway, I went on my first diet, and, you know, there's a section in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous of, you know, the methods we tried to stop drinking, drinking only wine, drinking only beer, all that kind of stuff, and drinking only on the weekends. And, you know, I really loved the structure of dieting, so it was like it started the whole yo-yo of the up and down of, of going on a diet and losing all the weight and then gaining it all back and, you know, gaining an extra 10 pounds, 20 pounds, and then going on a diet again. So, I mean, I just tried everything out there and did everything I did. At the time, it was like Scarsdale diet, Beverly Hills diet, calorie counting, prescription speed, Weight Watchers camp, like flying to another state when I was like, you know, 14 going, just send me there, please, you know, exercise bulimia and just anything I could do. I mean, the Schick Center, for anyone who's old enough to remember what that was, where you go to quit smoking and lose weight, and they hook you up to electric shock, and you're supposed to bring in foods that you want to give up, and you eat the foods, and they shock you while you're eating the foods. I mean, it's so great. And I was a teenager, and I was like, sign me up. Like, these were things where my parents were like, okay, if you want to go do it. It's not like they were forcing on me. It was like things that I was like, anything to cure this. So I started to feel more and more uncomfortable gaining weight, and I was always able to lose the weight. Like I said, it was like losing the weight would always get me to my goal weight or below that during my anorexic period. And what I learned by experiencing Overeaters Anonymous when I finally came back here, you know, over 15 years ago, was food was my only tool to get through any emotion, and that when I lost weight all those times, I just had no ability to access life like I see these normal quote thin people out there in life without overeating and I'd be in this thin body for maybe like you know half a day and then I'd be like how do they do it without eating I just couldn't understand so I just had no concept how to do life without using food as a tool none I first actually landed in Overeaters Anonymous when I was 15 uh, I'm, I'm 42 now So I I first got there a long time ago, and we didn't even have the OA 12 and 12, and uh, we used the AA 12 and 12, and it was a small meeting. There were a couple people in there. I was in Colorado, and um, so I ended up in this meeting. Again, I was very resourceful in finding solutions, and that was one of the solutions I came across. I have no idea if I read about it or anything, but I just ended up there. I mean, it's so cool how we all end up here, like being 12-stepped or, you know, just our ears perk up when we hear about um, a 12-step program that has to do with food if we're struggling with food. So so I ended up there, and I was just too young to be at my bottom yet. I had to go out and do a lot more eating and dieting and insanity around food until I finally got here in my late 20s. And where the food took me was 
just to a place I, you know, when I finally got back here in my late 20s, I, I wasn't at my top weight, but I was at my top insanity. I was um, abusing laxatives and colonics, and I was binging out of control, and I lost my job. I couldn't even fathom about how to get a new job, so I just ate, and my apartment was a mess. I remember my sisters coming in and just being like, we're sending in a cleaning person. I'm like, what do you mean? It's fine. You know, I was just like so drunk with food, diets, and, you know, laxative abuse. I was just crazy, and I was at that point, though, that, you know, they talk about in the big book where it's just like that gift of desperation, where I was desperate not to be living the way I was living. And a friend of mine who was in the business I was in, she was like, why don't we check out OA? And I was like, oh, I've been there since I was a teenager. And I went to an OA meeting, and it was one in Hollywood, I think it's still there, on Thursdays. And I just immediately felt at home, and I ran into a friend of mine from, you know, my business who was there, and it was such a relief to see someone who I knew, and, you know, she's still in program, too, and she's still a good friend, and um, anyway, I just kept going to that meeting, and I went to that meeting for a year, and I was unwilling to get a sponsor, I was unwilling to look at changing my food or anything, but I came, and I just kept coming, so I spent a year in here coming to meetings, raising my hand, and sharing with you all about what I was binging on and crying. And any of my three minutes, you guys would clap and say, keep coming back. And that was my first year in L.A. And thank God. Like, it was the first, you know, like every other, quote, diet club or whatever, you know, it's like you have to reach some goal or be weight or this or that, and you're kicked out. And it's like I was welcomed here. And it was that first feeling of not being alone in the insanity of food and my head. So I kept coming back, and then finally I got a sponsor, and, you know, that's where my abstinence started, and it started, you know, my, my abstinence is three meals a day and a fruit snack if I need it, and um, that worked for a number of years, and, you know, in terms of, I mean, that's always been my abstinence. I do have a food plan now that I've been on for about nine years where there's just certain alcoholic foods I can't eat like a lady, so I choose not to eat them day at a time, and it gives me a lot more sanity, frankly. But my abstinence has remained the same, and so my experience is the steps got bigger and the food got smaller. So the more I dug into the book, and, you know, I just can remember at the log cabin in Hollywood, me and my sponsor, and we'd sit in the park afterwards, and I'd sit there and debate about, you know, is there a God in step two, and what's that God? And, you know, she would just say really loving, gentle things to me, like, well, do you believe that something powerful is happening in the group? that is beyond your power. Do you believe when you see people that are abstinent that, you know, used to be really heavy or starving or this or that and they're not doing that? Do you believe a power is happening in that circle? And, you know, I, I couldn't disagree. It was. It definitely was. And, um, you know, from so many years of the pain and humiliation of, especially the years of carrying a lot of weight that we only hear about in here, you know, it's like, being called names in school and wearing big moo-moos and wearing black in 90-degree weather and, you know, the pants rubbing together in between my thighs and, and um, wearing out my pants because my thighs were so too big, like all those things that I heard in here and I knew I wasn't alone. And the insanity of anorexia as well, which is, it was more of a prism for me of just the illusion of control. I mean, both compulsive reading and 
you know, anorexia for me was all about control. It's like I felt so out of control and I needed some sense of control. Until I came here, you know, until I really, you know, worked with a sponsor and humbled myself to someone else's direction as opposed to just, you know, my old ideas, like really surrendering my old ideas, was when I started to, you know, they say, you know, you come here and you get relief and then you work the steps and you get better. And um, I started to experience getting better and the weight started to come off. So I almost relapsed a few years in when the three meals just wasn't a big enough boundary for me. And I was doing some, I did eventually get a job and work in the same career I work today, which I feel very grateful and blessed to work in. And I was traveling and the food just got sexier and weirder and things like because I was traveling a lot, it's like I thought that, you know, I was in a different land or overseas or whatever, that, you know, things that I was doing at home doesn't apply here and, you know, in Europe or in Louisiana or wherever the hell I was. And so I started to gain some weight and it started getting funky and my sponsor left away. And so I got a new sponsor who took me through the big bus from the beginning. And she was hardcore with me and she's still my sponsor. And it saved my life once again. <laughs> Like, probably without her, I might have just wandered out there and not come back. So that's my experience of getting really serious and upping my commitments. And, um, you know, the first few years of working with her, it was like I was going to meetings every day, sponsoring a ton of women, three outreach calls a day. You know, it's like she really taught me to jump in the river of recovery, in the middle. Don't be on the outskirts. She was like, if you envision as a river and you're on the outskirts of the river, you're going to be swept aside. And if you're in the middle of the river with all of us, you can't help but to get better. And so I had to discover to let you guys know me if I was going to be in the river with you. And that was terrifying because, for me, the food was a big cover-up of just avoiding intimacy. Not just, like, sexual intimacy with boyfriends or whatever. Intimacy with my friends. Like, really, you getting to know me. And that's what I kind of want to talk about of just, like, my current life of the unveiling and just peeling the layers of, first of all, me getting to know me and then getting to know people and things and the world in a way that's not clouded where I'm, like, drunk with food or living in fantasy. That was a big thing, compulsive eating, living in fantasy and, you know, not having any gauge of reality. Because living in fantasy and growing up in alcoholism is a wonderful tool <laughs> if you're a kid because it's terrifying growing up in alcoholism where plates are flying and things are, people are screaming and you don't know if they're going to make it to the next day emotionally or whatever. So, like, fantasy is a great tool as a kid, but as an adult... It just has, you know, it doesn't work on a daily basis as a baseboard of living. So, you know, I, I had to learn all these things from an Overeaters Anonymous sponsor first and then eventually a sponsor in another program. So that's been the unveiling for me of just, you know, when someone asks me how I am, I don't have to smile and say, I'm fine, you know, when I'm not fine. And fine stands for fucked up and secure neurotic and eating, you know, and that's true. It's like put the wall up so you don't have to know me and I don't have to know myself and we can just pretend. So, you know, the last few years, I just want to talk a few more minutes and then open up for questions. It's really been about dislodging the old ideas and that's through Overeaters Anonymous and my other program that deal with people, places, and things and alcoholism and um, really letting go with a higher power of of 
you know, how I came to that, let me just say, because I don't want to get all serious, but really it's just about the steps, you know, it's not about what I think, it's about what I've learned by showing up here, so what I've experienced in here is I hit a new bottom until I had to, like, kind of come around to looking at that stuff on a deeper way, it's like page 53, it's got everything or not, what is the choice to be? I mean, that's the bottom line, and it doesn't have to be a higher power necessarily that I understand, or necessarily always believe in, but I know that I'm not God, and there's a lot of stuff going on beyond the ego and my preconceived notions of what the world is, so I had to, like, experience a whole new unveiling of that when I hit a whole new point within abstinence where I was wrought with control. I was just wrought with control, and I was like, I'm abstinent, I'm supposed to be free, and what's up? And I was just a mess again, and I had to, like, go through that unveiling again. Just the humbling experiences that we get of just being, you know, in a human body and deciding whether I want to choose a spiritual life or not. That's what it comes down to. So, you know, I've had the freedom with food, which is what this is about. And for anyone out there listening, if you're, like, binging, just don't leave. Just, like, keep going to Overeaters Anonymous. Keep going to meetings. Keep listening to podcasts. Go to any room with an A on the end if you're, like, living in Iceland and there's no O in It's like, just do whatever it takes. I mean, and I have experienced that by traveling around the world and doing whatever it takes to get through that day absolutely. Where there's no overreaching on site, maybe in the country I'm in, but I do whatever it takes, and then I'm never alone. And then these miracles start to happen. So, my life the last few years, I mean, things really started to change, you know, probably about five or six years ago, and things really started to shift. I went through a really dark period a few years ago, and my mom got really, really sick with cancer, and walking through just a dark period of her death and dying, basically, and walking through that abstinently and walking through all the work that I've done in here that was the bank account to get me through that. It definitely was. And doing whatever it took to get through that, like, you know, 30 days straight in the hospital with her and bringing my lunch, knowing where my dinner was going to be, like, miracles happening along the way, like, the only OA meeting in Denver on Christmas Day was in that hospital that she was dying. I mean, you know, things don't happen like that unless I wake up and allow myself to experience them. So I was hanging on a thread through that, and luckily, you know, I just wanted to do a quick pitch on Step 9 because I had done a nice step with my mom many years prior. So we had a very healing relationship the last few years that she was alive. And, you know, she still drove me crazy and, you know, did things that just, you know, I'd have to tell my sponsor about and stuff. But I was able to experience that love with her through her death and dying and be there when she died. And to go through a year of grief after that where I'd sit in the back of the room of OA and not even relate and raise my hand. In this meeting, I remember just asking the speaker, I'm like, have you ever lost faith? You know, like going through OA and not leaving, but feeling like, I know I need to be here. And, you know, that year I didn't relate to OA, but I still kept coming. I did a lot of outside grief work, a lot. And then things started to turn around, and I started to get lighter again, you know, like emotionally. Still within the same 10 pounds, mind you. I mean, in my previous life, before Overage Anonymous, 
it wasn't just like events like a parent dying. It was like if you cut me off in traffic, that was enough for me to binge and gain 10 pounds over. I would carry that resentment of that person, that red car, cutting me off in traffic and be thinking about it for a week. I mean, it didn't matter, you know, any excuse to eat. But, you know, when I got to that lighter place, I was like, wow. Oh, my God, thank God I didn't gain 80 pounds over it like I'd gained 80 pounds over everything else. And that is God's doing for me what I cannot do for myself. And that is you guys. Like, during those years, I was not in the middle of the river of OA. I was kind of on outskirts, but I didn't leave. I did not leave. You know, the last couple of years, I started to experience a deep relationship with the man that I'm now married to. Like, a real relationship with a partner and being available and open and vulnerable and scared and all those things and showing up for experiences that I just didn't think. I mean, that's what's so funny. Like, the whole fantasy realm. (laughs) I was joking about this in my other program. It's like, the one thing about, uh, like, dreaming and fantasy or whatever, or, you know, it's like we get smashed down by our disease and the distortion that happens. One thing that was never on my radar, I must say, was... I never dreamed about getting married. I just didn't. It wasn't on my radar at all. And so I was pleasantly surprised when we got to experience going through a wedding and getting married and friends and fellows and ceremony. That was the thing I never experienced except in here in 12-step rooms, like the ritual of ceremony and how amazing that is. To show up for that and show up for still keeping my bottom line through this next stage of marriage and, you know, a house together. I mean, this is the things I do know that I'll say about partnering with another human being and keeping abstinent. I knew that if I didn't have enough physical space, like my first sponsor told me that I love this, and I'm glad I remember this. She goes, if you do not take the physical space or emotional space that you need to and the people in your life, you will take that space with food. And that has stayed with me, like the these little things that sponsors say through the years. And so I knew if I was going to move in with my husband and his son, who's 15, we would need a bigger house <laughs> for me to have that physical space. Like, And that's how important abstinence is for me. That comes first. Abstinence, higher power, God, that's first before anything. And, you know, that whole adage of, You'll lose anything if you put something before that. So we're, like, finishing remodeling our house and making it spacious enough where I can get my... I need the physical space within to keep, to have my ritual, to have my readings, to have my... And that's what I need, and I know myself well enough to know that if this is... If we have a chance for a successful marriage, which I know we do and have the faith in that, that that's something I need, and I take care of these needs, whatever it takes. So that's where I am today, and, you know, I actually, I, I'm going to wrap up with questions. I'm forever grateful for Overeaters Anonymous. I just, I literally know, this is one thing I do know, the step one that says we admitted we're powerless over food that our lives have become unmanageable. I am so grateful of the gift of desperation that it was no question my life was unmanageable when, like, I lost my job to this disease, I couldn't clean my apartment, and I couldn't leave except to go to the market to get binge foods and order delivery. It was very clear to me. I'm not one of those people that just had 10 pounds to lose, and maybe I'm a compulsive eater. I am one of those people that is a real guttural compulsive eater. I will always turn to food if I do not stay connected with you guys and with my higher power. So, over here, I'm going to save my life. 
you know, I still sponsor a lot of women. I sponsor, like, seven women. The other things that I do in here look a little different. You know, they just do. I, You know, it's like I used to only do OA in getting abstinence. I'd be in meetings every day, sponsoring, fellowship after. You know, it was that and work, that and work. Like, that's it. And life got a little bigger, and I had to still keep the bottom line stuff that I need to do to keep abstinent and keep connected and give back and do service and, you know, stay here. But it just looks different today. So I'm really grateful for OA. I hope I, you know, God willing, never leave. And uh, thanks for letting me. Sure. So um, open up for questions. Talk to you more about what you did during that period when you stayed Okay, the question is what I did during that period when I stayed but I had a lack of faith. What did I do? Um, Honestly, I just had to go to the place to... I had to do a lot of outside things outside of OA that were getting to issues like outside therapies, outside grief groups. I mean, to be perfectly honest, which is... Not OA endorsed, I'm just saying that on the tape. But those are additional things that I was able to get to the root of a lot of things that weren't addressed necessarily on the meeting level. But I still kept a bottom line of how many meetings I'd come to. I'd at least come to one meeting a week. I'd still talk to my sponsor. And the most important thing that has always kept me coming back to the day, like especially those times that my mom was dying, like in the hospital or whatever, I was still talking to my sponsors. And that, was, that has been the the unbelievable glue of doing service for someone who maybe just has a day less than me that got me out of myself because this disease for me is like and it says in the big book it is so ego based it's me 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 and whatever you're saying what does it have to do with me you know and it's just like I need to get out of myself and I need to go to places to deal with issues that maybe it's it's not dealt with in here and the faith and as long as I didn't leave the faith started to come back. That's my experience. It wasn't anything magical. And I was honest about where I was. I would share in meetings about losing faith. I could not, like, sit here and try to BS with the group as if I'd want to. Like, who am I trying to look good in here for? Nobody's <laughs> anonymous. Like, we're all equal here. So that was one thing, you know, I had to surrender to. Yeah. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. What do you do when the question is, what do I do when character defects come back and, like, keep coming back and how do I, how am I, I'm paraphrasing the question now, how am I continually humbled by my character defects? For me, I am definitely self-will run riot. And um, it does not have to take one time for my character defects to kick my butt. It's usually four or five times. So I'm willing to, number one, recognize them. And number two, talk about it with my sponsor. And the great thing about life is I remember I was dealing with a work situation um, and a personality that I was having problems with, which is usually the reason why I ate for so many years. Is everyone's personality was driving me crazy, and you're not doing what I want you to do, so I'm going to eat over you. So this personality, once again, was pissing me off in the way she was conducting business and I call my sponsor and blah 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 and I'm like well when this project's over you know and it was my ego and like you know and my sponsor said she said listen if you she goes do not worry let's say this woman's name was you know um, 
Sarah, or whatever, it wasn't her name, but she was like, if you don't deal with Sarah and the issues at hand that come up with you, that project may be over, but God will present you with 12 other Sarahs <laughs> in your life to teach you that lesson, and that has been my experience, so it's not only necessarily the first Sarah, it's usually like the fourth or fifth that I'm willing to let go of what I think is right, that's what it always is, and tune in, like plug into God's will. And most importantly for me, like, the term worker among workers also applies to life situations. Like, how can I be of service and principles before personalities, like, all these platitudes that totally apply to me getting out of the way? Yeah, I usually have to be beaten into submission until I'm willing to even know about it. And then I, I dig into the book and I do writing. If it comes up, I do, you know, a 10-step on it. And usually it always comes down to me switching my attitude, and usually shutting my mouth. That usually is helpful, and to let things play out the way they're supposed to play out. So, that's been helpful. Thank you for talking about fantasy, because in my experience, like for myself, and also with a lot of the women I work with, it's actually a big part of the disease that you don't hear a lot in the room. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of the tools you use to deal with fantasy. Okay, the question is, what are some of the tools I use to deal with fantasy? That's a great question, and... What I'm learning now is there's a healthy part of fantasy because, you know, the anorexic in me would like to, like, create life is this, and this is the way it's supposed to be, and nothing else. You know, you're not even allowed to have fun, you know. <laughs> and um, so that's where I am with it, of learning, like, fantasy can also be dreaming and having fun and the healthy part of it, like, sorting out what the healthy part of it. But the fantasy that got me in trouble into the quicksand of insanity was definitely things like walking into a situation and thinking this XYZ is supposed to happen. And that's me living in my head and living on some old preconceived notions of what life's supposed to be like. And the biggest tool for fantasy just being smashed is to allow myself to be surprised. And, you know, to be also, be really honest about my fantasy. Like, that is something I need to talk about with my sponsor, write it down, or this or that. It's a delicate balance, though, because I can't, like, just bash fantasy and it being a bad thing, because that's also where a lot of my imagination comes from. So, it's that weird thing that I think only God can balance, where I say, okay, God, like, what's real and what's not? And, you know, my sponsor always says, if you're talking to yourself, then you're probably lying. <laughs> so, you know, that's a helpful thing, like, to, when something goes on to, like, run it by someone else. And I have, like, a circle of women that I talk to about stuff where I'm like, is this reality or not? Tell me what the difference was between your step inside yourself, knowing inside yourself that this relationship was going to be a real relationship and not a fantasy or not, you know, that's a good question. Uh, the question is, how could I tell within myself that this relationship that I'm in now, being my marriage, I assume, of that it is a real relationship and not fantasy? Um, I had to really dig deep into the Al-Anon program, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, uh, which has helped me a lot around relationships. My sponsor I work with now, she said, before when I was binging, or when I, was, when I started working with her and I was starting to gain some weight and almost relapsed that period, and she said... The man that you're going to meet three years from now, or whatever, let's say, she's like, if you, if you clean up your food and get to full weight or 
are, are clear and sober around the food and you're not drunk with food. She goes, that man you're going to meet is going to be a completely different man that you're going to meet then versus now. Because when I'm in my disease, my experience is I'm attracted to alcoholics and crazy people and <laughs> unnurturing people and I will use people like that to make excuses for real intimacy. And what I did in the past was I would choose, like, these unavailable, or I'd do tons of long-distance relationships that was really, like, he, like, you know, all over the place, and, you know, where they were very compartmentalized. So I'd have these relationships, and then I'd say, well, they're unavailable, and they're mean to me, or this or that, so this will never work. So I already chose the rejection before it even had a chance. So once I started getting better, I started to attract healthier people, and it just started to converge that way. The disease of compulsive eating is definitely a disease of isolation. And there's stuff about being single that really worked for me. <laughs> really worked. But what I discovered was I didn't, you know, it was like I didn't want that anymore. And so I really, in the state of just being clear and abstinence, discovering that actually in the state that I was in, which was clear and sober with food, and clearing over with the steps, and also going through a lot of grief. Like, things just shed away. And so I was able to attract healthier people. And I just knew, I knew that this was right, right to take to the next level. But I share about that a lot, about I was never someone who dreamed about getting married and partnering, but this was so right to do, and I'm so glad that I get to be, like, available for an entirely new experience. So... How do I deflate my ego and manage it? Well, life does it for me. <laughs> um, oh my God, I never realize what an egomaniac I am until I just get beaten into submission by the. You know, I never knew until I worked the steps in here that people-pleasing, you know, it's like, let me do all this, quote, service for people or whatever. It was all about my ego, because what was I going to get from doing this for you? I think it was really just, you know, it's, it's year by year of, of the basis of it for me is knowing that God is in charge and knowing that I am not in charge. Like, that's the great equalizer for me. But it's a daily thing for me. It's a daily thing where my ego will get in the way, and that's why there's a tense step, and that's why I get to do the tools in here just like someone who's on day one. I, I don't feel like the character defects have changed, but my recognition of them is so much quicker when I didn't even realize they were there before. So, you know, and being in meetings, oftentimes, like, I'll, where my ego gets me in trouble is at work, and... I'll come to a meeting after work, and it's usually, like, something that someone else shares where I'm like, oh, that's why I felt that way today, you know? It's usually just hearing it through other people that um, is very soothing and um, knowing that I don't have to be in charge. A great ego deflator, this is a funny one, my, one of my sponsors, she goes, you just need to sit in a group conscience in a 12-step meeting and not say anything and see how uncomfortable you feel. Because, <laughs> you know, it makes me feel uncomfortable if, like, you know, I can't control situations like a group conscience in a, in a 
room is a great petri dish of, you know, what happens in life. <laughs> you know, I just pulled this off and it was so great. That's a great ego deflator. Did things actually work out in a group conscience, whether I open my mouth or not? Okay, um, that's it. Thank you very much.